I sit and think about, I heard that song, I'm like, man, there's, there's, I'll talk loud in a minute. <laughs> I'm having a hard time right now. <laughs> I'm having a moment. I started thinking about hearing that song, and I'm like, this is a, this is a new album that comes out. I'm not usually a big fan of Jeremy Riddle. songs are okay sometimes, some are good, sometimes they're okay. This album's like, <laughs> um, but I started thinking about there are people that don't know Jesus. And I sit sometimes and do nothing, tell nobody. There's people that don't know Wonderful Counselor. They go through all the stuff they go through without having somebody to confide in, like I have. There's people that don't know Almighty God, the one who's able to do anything. There's people that don't know Jesus as Savior. It doesn't just deliver from hell, but he adopts it to his family. If he's the greatest of all time to us, because he's the greatest of all time, whether he is to you or not, just so you know. Sometimes we people don't acknowledge him for who he is. That's a choice we make. But no matter what, at one point in time or another, every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and you don't have a choice at that point in time, but now we have a choice. So he's the greatest of all time, whether you believe it or not. So that's kind of... But today, if you don't know him as that, I'm just not coming up here and preaching a message right now. I'm just coming up here and saying, I plead with you. Surrender your life to Jesus. You will never regret, I promise, the decision to follow Jesus. But every single person who doesn't choose to follow Jesus will have a day and time when they see him for how great he really is, and there will be a lot of regret. So my prayer for all of us today, even before we get into this today, acknowledge him and who he is and how great he is and how much we need him. For those who know Jesus, acknowledge him not just by praying, not just by singing songs, but acknowledge him by telling people. And man, if I really acknowledge that he's the greatest of all time in my life personally, would I not want the person next to me to also know that? That's true evidence of my love, not only for him, but of my love for my neighbor. Like, if I really love the people I'm around, I'm not telling them about Jesus because so, I'm judging them. I'm telling them about Jesus because he's amazing and because they need him. And because I have seen the goodness of the Lord over and over and over again. So how can I not tell people about that? This is just a soapbox moment. I was not planning any of this right now. I'm just wanting to share what I'm feeling from the Lord right now. There's an urgency. But the church does a lot of sitting singing songs. But it's time for the church to stand up in the power of the Holy Spirit and declare loudly that He's the greatest of all time. That He's the answer to every single problem the world has. There's nothing He can't do. No one He can't save. Nobody He doesn't love enough to go to a cross for. 
Lord, we surrender to you today. Lord, use us now, we ask in Jesus' name. We don't want to sit on the sidelines. We're not judgmental sharing your love. We're just doing it because of your love, Lord. And so I pray today over all of us, before I even get into the word this morning, help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, if we really love you and we really know your goodness and we really love our neighbors and the people around us, we will not withhold the good news. It's good news, Lord. This next week we celebrate everything that you've done for us and that you accomplished on our behalf. Pray we would take it seriously with honor and with humility, with brokenness, but also that it would cause our hearts to be stirred once again for you and once again for the cause that you've called us to. You have given us a purpose. Let us live in that purpose. Move in that purpose. Let our lives, let our words, let our relationships, let everything we do bring glory to your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Sorry for that. I'm going to try, I'm going to try, I'm going to try really hard. I, uh, but I am going to do it. <laughs> I'm going to continue series, The Goat. The greatest of all time. It's amazing that we're talking about Jesus, who's the lamb, and we're talking about the goat. He's the goat. The goat is a lamb. Um, but we're going to get into, I wasn't sure if I was going to get into anything that had to do with Palm Sunday or not. I'm not one of those people that wants to do that all the time. You know that about me already. Um, I will break every single rule if that's what the Lord wants me to do, and I'll do it. So like we didn't do communion today, and like some people was like, I wanted some juice. I'm like, uh, well, I just felt like the Lord was, for other things that we're going to do today, we're moving it. And um, because the, the scripture doesn't say do it every week or every month or every whatever. It just says, as often as you do this. In other words, every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so um, we moved it, and that's because the Lord wanted us to. And there's other things we're going to do today that are important. And, um, and so I'm going to talk a little bit about Palm Sunday, going against my own grain. I was all week wrestling with it, and then the Lord, I shared this last, week, last year. You're going to see some things I'm going to share right now that I shared last year, which means two years in a row, which that's not common. Um, Joshua, you've been with me a long time. You'll, you'll acknowledge, right? I'll preach Christmas at Easter, Easter at Christmas. I don't care. If the Lord gives a word, then I'll do it. It's two years in a row. I'm talking about Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday. I'm proud of myself. <laughs> but, but, I am, but I am going to share it in a different way. It'll, it'll, what I did last year, I think, was really good setup for what I'm going to do today. So I'm going to use it. And we're going to kind of get into it. Um, it is pretty rich. I mean, the, the story of the triumphal entry of Jesus is literally one of, the, one of the few things that is in all four Gospels. What's amazing about the Gospels is that you've got different perspectives. You've got a tax collector, you've got a person who's in the medical field, you've got, you got all these different people who were sharing their points of view, and so they share it from their point of view differently. Some were secondhand accounts, but still they, they still shared it from the way that they see things. And so it's kind of awesome how you read all four, you see little bits and pieces that they all kind of fit together as the whole picture of what happened. And so I'm not going to go into all four of them today. I'm just going to read out of two. I'm going to, I'm going to read some from Luke, and I'm going to, um, after we're done with Luke, I will um, read a little bit in Matthew. Um, now Luke hits on just little pieces of it, and then Matthew takes what Luke says and what we see in the other Gospels, and he kind of brings everything together more than the other Gospels. So I'm going to share both today. Um, Luke chapter 19, verse 28 through 44. I'll echo a little bit of the things that Cindy said this morning before our worship. 
Verse 28, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it. And just as, they, as he told them, as they were untying the colt, its owners asked, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. I think that's funny, actually. Like, anybody here own a motorcycle? Anybody? We have no risk takers in this room. So I have a friend of ours we actually met with. I know a lot of old people who ride motorcycles. I have a friend who's a pastor, and he's, he's part of a Christian motorcycle group, and he's in his 60s, and they'll ride motorcycles right into their sanctuary. They have these events that they do, and they, uh, it's kind of awesome. But um, I don't ride one because I don't want to die. But, <laughs> so I'm not a risk taker in that way. Like if I want to feel the air in, air in my hair, I'm going to go buy a convertible or row down the windows, but I'm not, I'm not getting out of a motorcycle. Um, but our friend, we just met with our friend Friday night who was a pastor with us. He was on staff with us at the, tr- at the church we planted in Flint years ago. And we hadn't seen him and talked to him really here and there chatting, but never talked to him. We sat with him for, for dinner Friday night for the first time in like seven years. And they're telling me, he showed me a picture of the motorcycle that he purchased. Because the pastor of the new church he goes to got a motorcycle and they kind of, you know, men were terrible like this. We're like, you know, he looks at him and shows him his motorcycle, and then he starts talking to him about how he's weak because he doesn't have a motorcycle. He needs to get one. So he went and bought a motorcycle so he can ride with them. And he showed me the picture of the motorcycle, but I started thinking about that because, like, what's the closest thing that we have nowadays to a horse if you live in a city? Because city folk, we don't have horses. Uh, I don't, matter of fact, I'm probably more likely to ride a motorcycle than a horse. I did horseback riding once, and I thought I killed it. It was going around in circles, and it literally stopped. And it, it was going downward, and it was like like two, three minutes straight, and I'm like, I think it's dying, and it's because of me. So I'm like freaking out on this horse. It was pooping. So it was, it was whatever. It was whatever, but I, I'm not going to ride a horse again. So, but I, but I would, we're probably more likely to ride a motorcycle. But I thought about this when I read this. Think about this. If you own a motorcycle that's parked outside in front of your house, my brother had a Harley, and it got stolen, so I understand how much he likes it. Um, that's what you get for living in River Rouge and parking your motorcycle on the street. But... um. So anyway, um, I thought about this. Imagine if you had a motorcycle parked out front. I say Harley because you spent like $30,000, $40,000 on a Harley. It's ridiculous. It's only got two wheels. It should cost half that. <laughs> but anyway, you have this $40,000 motorcycle parked out front of your house, and some people randomly come up, and they start getting ready to take it. And you're like, what are you doing? Why are you taking that? And their answer is, the Lord needs it. Like, what's your response going to be to that? Like, oh, okay, fine, you can have my motorcycle. Because that's what happened here. It's kind of wild. Like, you can have my horse, whatever the Lord needs it. And, uh, and not everybody here in this passage, not everybody believed Jesus was Messiah, right? You're, you're talking about a place where, where many of them were expecting, as we heard earlier, they were expecting a king, but a king who would dominate Rome and a king who would be this, this, this military-type political warrior king, kind of like David was, only greater, right? So it's kind of like that mindset they expected, and so, like, if, if, if a guy like that wants your horse, it's a good chance it's going to die in battle. Do you really want to give up your horse? I just think about all these crazy things. 
I would probably say, if I was in their position, no, you can't have my horse, because if I didn't know Jesus, but they let him have the horse. That's not part of the message. I just thought it was funny. I, I read that, and I see things. Maybe people don't see, and it like messes with my head, so I have to talk about it. <laughs> Verse 35. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And he went along. People spread their cloaks on the road. Now, this is interesting to me because we call Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday. We call it, really, it's the triumphal entry, but we talk about palms all the time. But cloaks were just as much a part of this as the palm branches were. They had very big significance on why they were put there. And so we talked about that last year, but I'll get into it again in just a minute. So when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in, a loud, in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. All these people were coming to where Jesus was because they had heard he raised Lazarus from the dead, and there's all these miracles he's done. So they're all coming to see this king, but they still didn't expect him to, to be the kind of king that he actually was. So verse 38, blessed is the king. They're giving him that title, king, who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, because they didn't like the fact that they were calling him king. And so they like, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus gives this comment that I love, because Jesus is cool like this. Gives this really cool response to them. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. In other words, you don't realize who I am. You just think that I'm a military political king, but I am not just a military political king. I am so great and so mighty that if, if they don't praise me, even rocks will praise me, right? That's the mindset Jesus... So Jesus was humble, but at the same time, he knew who he was, right? He's God. He's, he's, he is king of kings, not just king of the Jews. So we're going to Matthew chapter 21, starting with verse number 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey there, tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says, to anything, says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he, will send them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the, through the prophet so I'm going to, instead of just reading what he said, what the prophet said in verse 5, I'm actually going to go right to Zechariah chapter 9, 9, which is written you know, a couple thousand years before this moment. Um, and you're talking about, well, maybe not that long, but um, timeline well before. So it's a prophecy regarding what was going to happen with Jesus, that Jesus fulfilled this. And this is what he's talking about in Matthew. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. In other words, Jesus is coming. There's a reason why Jesus, I think, he got on a donkey instead of a horse. Kings in this time period, when they would go into battle or they would arrive in front of crowds, they would be with chariots and on horses that were white and beautiful and all these kind of things. So they're coming in on these horses to be a symbol of their power and of their authority. Jesus did the opposite. He went on a donkey, which was lowly and humble. So he came to make a statement before he accomplished his mission. The statement, I believe, was simple. This kingdom's not my kingdom. My kingdom's from a different place. I didn't come just to be king of the Jews. 
But I love the fact that Jesus was an example to us. Even James in 4.10, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will lift you up. I think Jesus was an example of that. He humbled himself because he's eventually going to be lifted up. He humbled himself on a donkey, went to the cross. Even literally when he went to the cross, he literally said, I could have had 10,000 angels come and save me because I'm God, but I gave myself up. So he came humbly in order to be lifted up eventually. So continuing in Matthew, Matthew 21, in verse number 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road with, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. So now Matthew's adding in something that was not talked about earlier. He mentioned the cloaks, but now he also brought in the branches, the palm branches. There's significance in that as well. So the crowds that went ahead of him went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Savior, in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So they got that part wrong. He's not just a prophet. But it's interesting to me because Jesus is coming in there saying all these awesome words about Jesus. Like he's Hosanna in the highest of the highest heavens. Jesus, those kind of words. Yet the same crowd later on were the same crowd that were yelling, crucify him. It's because they really never saw him the way that he was. They saw him the way they expected him as king that would conquer Rome and all those kind of things. So that when they started realizing that this is not what's going to happen. That's when they turned on him and said, well, you're not the kind of king I want. So he turned on him and started saying, crucify him. Two things that I mentioned last year that I'm going to mention again, the, the, the significance of the cloaks. Um, the cloaks being laid down on the ground or laid on the coat before Jesus sat on them were very significant. They were mentioned only one time in Scripture beforehand, this action, which was in 2 Kings 9.13. It says, Then in haste every man, um, every man of them took his garments and put it under him on the bare steps, and he blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. In other words, they were putting cloaks on the ground as Jehu was walking up, and they were declaring him as king. These cloaks represented just that. As Jesus comes in, they're throwing the cloaks on the ground. They're declaring that he is king. So they're not just saying that he's king. They're doing an action that shows that Jesus is king. Then there is the, the palm branches that were cut. and they, Some waved them, some put them on the ground, and those represented victory, actually. So they were really kind of a cool combination. He is the king of victory that's taking place. So they were declaring these things. But while they were declaring these things, they had no idea what they were really doing. It's, it's like they had a different idea of why they were doing it, but really what they were doing is foreshadowing what was to come. They're like, I, he's king of, 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 of Jews. They called him king of the Jews even on the cross. And he was king of the Jews, but here's the thing is Jesus is too great to just be king of the Jews. He's too great just to be king of the Jews. He has to be king of the nations of the universe, of all things. And so they're declaring him as this. And so what we're seeing with this picture that's painted in this passage is they were literally like, he's king, he's bringing victory, and their victory in their mind was destroying their enemies. Not necessarily what Jesus would end up doing later on. Jesus said in I mean, Paul, I mean, not Paul, John wrote in, in uh, John eighteen thirty six what I mentioned a moment ago, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom were of this world, my servants would, have, would be fighting so that I would not have be handed over to the Jews. 
But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So in other words, Jesus, everything he was doing was in preparation for the kingdom that he was going to establish in the earth. It was going to happen after he was crucified and raised from the dead. That he was then going to, this kingdom was literally, Jesus' kingdom is, I mean, it's in us. Right? And so you have this kingdom that is not, their, their mind is kingdom is temporal. It's just conquering. They see victory. Jesus is like, I'm not from this place. So I'm going to go down to Revelations because I'm going to read a couple of things because they parallel really well and it's actually really cool. And it's some of my favorite passages in all scriptures. I wish they would make movies of this. They should make movies of this because the special effects would be ridiculous. So Revelations chapter 7, verse 9 through 12. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count. From every nation and all tribes, peoples, and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, sounds really a lot like what they were saying back then, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. So what's happening in here in Revelation, which is a picture in heaven that's taking place, is almost like what we saw happen back then. They were acknowledging him as king, acknowledging he's victorious, but he was not what they expected. But now he stands in a place after being raised from the dead, now being at the right hand of the Father, sitting in glory in the place where he belongs, having authority over all things. And palm branches come back into the picture again because he brought victory to all of us. Revelations chapter 19, 11 through 16. And I saw heaven opened up and behold, a white horse. Remember we talked about the difference between the donkey and the white horse back in that time period when Jesus got on the donkey? Literally, white horses symbolized purity and victory. So they came in and marched in it with a mighty army that they came in and battled. That's how they came in. If a king would walk into a place, that's how they would come. Jesus came on a donkey because he wasn't ready yet. He had accomplished his mission, and then he can get on the white horse. So I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. This is interesting because we look at Jesus in current culture and the way people teach him. Um, it's like he's just loving and grace and soft. And he's all of those things. But when you want to know the full scale of who Jesus is, you have to dive into things like this where he actually is preparing for battle. He came in humble, but now he's going to be leading a battle that's going to take place. He's going to judge and he's going to wage war. This is the picture. Can you imagine this in the movie if it's done right? His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many crowns. And he has the name written on him, which no one knows except himself because it's just that great. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it it may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he, and he, treads, on the, he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. 
hear this phrase, and on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When he rode on a donkey, he was king of the Jews. But that was not the end game for Jesus. He's the greatest of all time. You can't kill him unless he lets you. You can't stop him unless he submits. He did everything he did for a purpose, but eventually he's now in this position where he comes in on his white horse of victory, and he literally would judge the nations. I think that's a scary thought. That we're going to stand before God, and there's going to be this judgment that's going to take place. And it's going to be important. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Now, this moment's not that moment. This is a different moment that's taking place. This is just a moment where Jesus is ready to fight the battle. And the enemy, literally, later on his passions, Satan and, and, and demons and all those things are literally going to be tossed alive into the lake of the fire, like a fire, according to Scripture. So, in other words, they're going to lose. I actually love that passage, one of the passage, versions we read regarding Satan, that literally um, an angel takes him, like a single angel. We all make him out to be this big, bad dude. Literally, one angel. <laughs> because of how great Jesus is, though. That's why it's happening. He's so great, so amazing, so powerful. And what he did and what he accomplished for us puts him now in this place. This picture, I just, when I read these passages, I'm like just mind-blowing, mind-blowing, blowing, mind-blown. I, I just, every time I read it, I'm like, we have this triumphant conqueror, Jesus. And, and we want to put him in this little tiny thing, like he's just so soft and cushy and loving, caring, and this, that, and the other. That's the culture today. That's what it is. Because if you acknowledge him also as judge, well, now I've got to stand before judge. If I acknowledge him also as a God who is almighty and great and literally has all authority and has eyes of fire and crowns and a sword in his mouth and all these kind of things, and he's riding with a, on a white horse, and behind him is an army of angels on white horses all coming to battle. According to Scripture, the kings of the earth and the enemy, Satan. This is an amazing picture. It's painted. It's an, it's, and here to de- here's the deal. He is a loving, caring God. Jesus loved us enough to go to a cross for us. He loved us enough to, to do all of those things. He is caring. But at the same time that he is those things, do not forget he is almighty God. Do not forget that he is king of kings. Capital K, kings. Lowercase key, kings. He is king of all the small kings. He's the big king. He's Lord of all the lords. At the sound of his name, every single knee, every king of the earth, every politician in the world, every single person you know breathing or who has ever breathed will bow before Jesus and declare that he is Lord. And it will do so because his presence is so incredible. I I see this picture here, and I don't even think it does really validates it the way it really is. We're reading it because our minds are so small. We're reading it, we're like, whoa, this is kind of neat. It's like probably way cooler. In real life, it's going to be like, whoa, it's going to be so great that when we see him, it's going to be like automatic response down to my knees to bow and acknowledge him for who he is. That's what's going to happen. That is who he is. And the reason why he now sits on the white horse and that's who he, why he's going to do those things is because of what he did. Humbled himself. Not going to be just your king. I'm going to be everybody's king. We serve the greatest of all time. 
the greatest of all time. We've seen God in our lives personally do so many crazy, awesome things. Yet, those crazy, amazing things that you've experienced, testimonies, deliverance, healing, salvation, even to the ones you thought were the farthest from God that would never turn their hearts towards God. I've known people, I, I told you a story before, my friend who was a satanic high priest, his mom prayed for him for years, and she, he, come, he, he surrenders life to Jesus, now is a pastor in Washington. The farthest heart from the Lord. When they have a fresh revelation of who he is, will melt in his presence. That's how great he is. As great as he is, he comes right now here to us personally and says, I love you, I care for you, enough to where I keep giving you opportunity after opportunity. And my grace is sufficient. I'm never going to stop. As long as you breathe, I'm always going to come to you. I'm always going to draw you. I'm always going to try to help you to understand that you need me and that when you surrender your lives to me, I will transform you and I'll change you. All those great things. And then, and then the reward for living for Jesus now is we get to be... Uh, First-hand witnesses <laughs> to what I just read. You're going to see these things take place, but not from a place of fear. The world will be in fear. Those who are still here who are kings of the earth, they'll be in fear. But we don't have to face the wrath of the Lord at this point because we know Jesus and we've walked with him. So now when I see the fire in the eyes, I'm like, yeah, he's on my team. <laughs> I'm, I'm with him. I'm, I'm with that guy right there. Like, you ever been there before? Like, when you're, you're, you're facing a really intimidating situation, you're like, I'm with him. Like, this person who, who you know that people are afraid of, like, I'm with him. That's what we get to do later. I'm with him. I'm with him. Thank you, Jesus, that we get to be with him.